If I Ran the Bank is a podcast hosted by Clayton Weir, co-founder and head of product and strategy at Fispan, a fintech that is enabling banks to provide contextualized, consumer-like experiences to their business clients. Clayton is a thought leader in financial innovation and hits on the hottest topics in banking, finance, and the future of payments. And he wants to know, if you ran the bank, what's the one thing you'd go all in on? Please tune in to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, here's your host, Clayton Weir. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of If I Ran the Bank. Um, I'm your host, as always, Clayton Weir. And today's guest is Reed Lutman, um, who's the executive director of Faster Payments Council. I came to know Reed as a very opinionated, smart person with also with a glorious beard, I should say, on a random industry WebEx last year. And uh, when I started the podcast, I knew this was a voice that I'd want to share with you all. Trained as a lawyer originally, which we're not going to hold against him. He's had a very interesting career with a number, I think, of different missions within the treasury payments and, and broader business operations functions at Walmart. You know, most of you know, it's the world's largest retailer and probably business in general by most measures. And I think a company that actually sits at a very interesting part of the financial services industry due to the nature of some of the communities that they serve. Um, Reed's now the executive director of the Faster Payments Coalition, as I said, which is a trade association that I would describe as trying to accelerate the ubiquity of faster payments in the U.S. Um, Reed, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. Really excited to be here. Thanks, Clayton. Uh, is there anything in your background that I that you want to kind of clean up or clarify there? No, I, I think you, I think you hit it all well. Um, you know, I'm just excited to to be here to talk about faster payments as always you know you mentioned I'm running the FPC now um, I could if you'd like I can go into some depth on what the FPC is and what we're focused on and, and how we're constructed that 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 would be awesome great great so uh, as Clayton mentioned I'm the executive director at the US faster payments Council the FPC is an industry-led member organization whose mission is to facilitate a world-class payment system where Americans can safely and securely pay anyone anytime anywhere with near immediate funds availability. So I'm responsible for managing the daily operations of the organization, creating and executing on that strategy around, around what I just mentioned. Um, and also while includes ensuring an inclusive and transparent dialogue with all of our stakeholders. So the FPC is a little bit unique in that unlike other trade associations or industry organizations, which are generally assembled around a particular industry vertical, the FPC is really assembled around a concept or an idea. And that idea is ubiquitous, safe, easy to use, faster payments are going to benefit all of us. So we bring together all the different facets of the payments ecosystem, which includes business end users, uh, such as Walmart, who you just mentioned, my former employer, uh, but also Microsoft and Netflix and Airbnb. So a host of variety there. Um, Consumer organizations like the National Consumer Law Center and Citizens for Responsible Lending. financial institutions that run the gamut from the very, very largest. So Chase and Citi, um, um, mid-tier banks and final and credit unions, and then small community credit unions and, and financial institutions and banks. So the whole you know 50 or 60 financial institutions in our membership. Payment network operators, including all of the folks that you might think about, Visa and MasterCard, 
the clearinghouse is a member actually, and also the Federal Reserve is a member of ours, which is a bit unusual and unique for us. Um, technology providers, uh, so very large ones again, like FIS and Fiserv and Jack Henry and ACI Worldwide, uh, but also a host of really you know startup type innovative folks. A lot of folks focused on crypto and blockchain, so tremendous variety there as well. And then a catch-all for ones that we lovingly call others. Um, so uh, mostly trade associations, consultancies, etc., and, and actually a few law firms. Uh, that uh, of course I'm a biased towards myself. <laughs> <laughs> we, we would have hate, hated for others to go under-recognized in the coalitions. Good you made a bucket. Got to give the others their love. <laughs> Very good. So so on that note, I mean, I think you raise an interesting point, right? It, it It's legitimately a coalition. And in some ways, those are, you know, it is an assembly of audiences that wouldn't always be in the same room talking to each other at the same time of, about these issues. And I guess that just goes to Maybe how I'm just putting random words on, you know, kind of in your mouth, but I guess it's the magnitude and the importance and just kind of the point in history are in terms of now building purpose building, I guess, a a financial system that is appropriate for the nature of commerce and life in 2021. Right. And going forward, it just it's it's very it's a very different world we live in. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you hit the nail on the head there that what we're talking about is very intentionally and very, you know, to a certain extent, methodically, and maybe even, you know, more methodically than some uh, would have preferred, we're doing something for the first time in what, 50 or 60 years in that we're rebuilding the payments infrastructure of the world's most complicated and complex economy, um, while we're obviously still engaged in tremendous levels of digital and remote commerce. Uh, that necessitate the types of payments that we're trying to improve upon through what we're doing here at the FPC. So you've got simultaneously, obviously, huge scale for the clearinghouse and the Fed on ACH, obviously, obviously huge scale for the likes of Visa and MasterCard, et cetera, um, through card-based payments. Um, and, And all of those are sort of here involved in this effort to advance the U.S. towards these faster, whether that be instant or immediate uh, payments. Uh, with the different audiences you laid out, and I don't want you again to, I don't want to put you in a corner to put words in their mouths, but can you maybe give us kind of a, you know, a single sentence, especially for the four kind of core audiences, like what their, you know, interest is in sitting at the table on something like this, or what, you know, what you think their kind of core concern or objective is, however you want to characterize it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the the primary reason why folks want to be engaged with the FPC that it can it can vary quite a bit depending on the constituency, as you might imagine. Uh, I think there's a lot of desire among various, especially the large scale players, to be there to influence these outcomes and to ensure that the interests of, say, business end users and financial institutions and technology companies and networks are harmonized in a way that allows for a uh, ultimate result that is you know palatable. Um, and I, and hopefully even better than palatable, uh, for all those different constituencies. Um, you know, at, at the same time, I think there are a lot of folks who are here because they want to be part of the conversation. They want to get information. They want to get educated and be part of that dialogue. Um, and so I, I think, you know, to a certain extent, the narrow focus of the FPC allows that to happen and allows for really rich, in-depth dialogue on a, on a pretty specific topic, but one that is, 
on the precipice of becoming the mainstream focus of the payments ecosystem in the United States. So I think there's a lot of interest there and just being here for that dialogue and learning from the others who have sort of, you know, broken the ice ahead of you. Um, and, and also ensuring that the different perspectives are heard. So I think there are people who are here um, out of a sense of obligation almost, or a sense of, you know, wanting to make sure that what we end up with in terms of a, you know, core settling in settlement uh, infrastructure for the United States can really serve all the needs that it needs to going forward. So there are folks here who say, you know what, if other, say, insurance companies aren't going to have the the bandwidth to step up, we want to make sure that that constituency is heard and understood. And and same thing goes for financial institutions, right? So there are FIs who say, you know what, I got to make sure that the community financial institution voice is heard in these conversations um, and, and, and voiced in a way that, that makes sure that everybody's perspective is understood so we can move forward um, with solutions that truly do work for everybody. It totally makes sense to me. Um, and just uh, when you talked about that, about specificity, I, um, I think a point of clarification, I'm just going to make an assumption here. I mean, I know sometimes because we use the word, you know, real-time payments, I think you guys are, have specifically used the word faster payments on on purpose, um, you know, but sometimes the, just these terms get, you know, mixed up with the brand name, for example, real-time payment rail, right? That has been instructed by, I'm assuming your work and concept is broader than any one clearing system or any one tool. It's the ubiquitous idea of these mesh of probably multiple clearing schemes and tools that we're going to need to solve all these problems. Is that is that a fair assumption as well? Or Absolutely, yes. So we, we have a pretty broad view of what a faster payment is, and it, it includes what you would think of as real-time payments or what the International Bank of Settlement has, re- has defined as fast payments. So true RTGS, you know, clearinghouse RTP style um, payments. So the RTP being one of those and FedNow being the other one on the, it's coming on the horizon, but then also sort of zooming out and saying, well, really there's this other category called immediate payments. And so that involves real-time messaging that allows the sender and receiver to know that, hey, this is this has happened. It's a done deal. The funds have moved from one account to the other, at least in the messaging layer. And now settlement might be later that day or the next day even. But uh, And then, you know, honestly, we actually even include same-day ACH in a lot of what we talk about because there's a lot of value in even speeding up ACH to be same-day. So um, they're, big umbrella approach for sure. Yeah, and I thought the wording that I saw somewhere on your website in the mission, it even references just like, you know, talking about that, about things just settling faster or, or uh, you know, funds becoming good faster. I mean, some of that is entirely more about business process and informational interaction probably than it is, the, you know, than the laws of physics on the actual payment clearing system itself necessarily, right? Yeah, for sure. And a lot of what we're looking at and what we're hearing about has to do with how is that information exchanged between the sender and the receiver to ensure that both parties, you know, have the transparency, which can often be lacking um, in various transaction flows. How do how do we speed up to allow for even, you know, for example, cross-border transactions, which can, you know, be a really very difficult thing to solve for. Um, in terms of transparency to the users of the systems. So yeah, there's lots of information gaps there. And I think, you know, one of the things that we talk a lot about is how does it not only about the speed, but also that data layer that can be associated and included with the ISO 2002 messaging um, that can really add value for, for end users. I think, 
as any good, you know, sort of advocacy type professional, you gave me your boilerplate on the mission of FPC, but could you maybe expouse on that, um, you know, maybe in more human terms or kind of more, you know, real world scenarios? Like what does success look like for you guys, right? If we start to play this forward five and 10 years and, and it's, you know, now time to disband the faster payments council, right? The world is sufficient. Like what, what would that look like? What would that mean for people and businesses and banks? Can you maybe walk us through that? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I, I don't foresee a time when we won't need <laughs> FPC. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, I've got enough foresight to to uh, evolve our missions <laughs> to avoid uh, running myself out of a job. But you know what? If that happens, so be it. You know, so absolutely. So I, I think first off, we talk about ubiquity a lot, and that's maybe not a word that everybody uses every day. Um, but what we're thinking about is how can we make it so that it's possible for every demand deposit account in the United States to reach every other DDA in a way that allows for immediate or instant transacting. So that's, and and in doing so, that's sort of like the foundational layer, but then how do we also, I talked about safety. So doing that in a way that ensures that you're not compromising the structural integrity of the payment system, that you're not creating risks that are unnecessary or unwarranted, that you're not opening people up to loss, and that you're educating people and ensuring that people understand to the extent these payments are different than maybe other electronic payments that they've done in the past. How are they different? Why are they different? And what are the implications of those differences for them uh, in terms of liabilities? And, And then also, like I mentioned, ease of use, right? So I think to a large extent, um, the first thing, ubiquity is, you know, I, 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 it's sort of flippant to say it's easy, but compared to ease of use, I think the, the major networks would tell you that the, the more difficult thing about building a network and scaling it and getting it to be in, used by millions and millions of people is figuring out what are those experiential layers like? How do you make it easy for a business to pay another business? How do you make it easy for a consumer to pay another consumer or to pay a business? How do you make those transaction flows simple and quick and easy? Um, it, you know, frankly, as make the experience for the customer as quick and easy as the payment underlying payment really un- ends up being with these systems. No, that I think that makes sense um, on on both of those. And I think they they ask, they kind of beg, you know, a, a million other questions. But on, on the, the sort of, you know, also, I find it hilarious that you effectively defined ubiquity as a word that itself was non-ubiquitous, um, which was a point of pedantry that we've now entered into the record. But the, uh, the <laughs> in terms of DDA coverage, right, or the number of bank accounts in the United States that, that have access to this, the last time I heard, and this may have been over a year ago, uh, was it was somewhere around, I thought, half that could maybe receive a payment. Is that sort of changed or what's the state of that? And maybe if you have the kind of send number, it'd be great just to context that for people. Yeah, it, it has changed considerably. So the percentage of DDAs that are connected to RTP, the Clearinghouse's real-time payments network, is now over 70%. So they've grown quite a bit in the last six to eight months uh, in terms of their connection for receive. Um, you know, I mentioned Visa and MasterCard before. They're, of course, connected to virtually 100% of the DDAs. So uh, you think about a service like, say, Zelle, which is um, um, more of a messaging service that leverages multiple different networks for payment and settlement, including the ones I just mentioned. Um, 
they they are able to to reach essentially 100% of accounts as well through through the various relationships they have. So there's there's a lot of activity happening in this space for sure and a lot of growth. Um, the clearinghouse tells us that you know each month they're seeing millions of transactions for billions of dollars um, through the RTP network, for example. Wow, which is really interesting. And I mean, there's, there just seems to be you know it's one of these things where it's kind of a slow compounding on it. Some interesting announcements around the you know the transaction limits on same day ACH recently, which fundamentally changed its usability in a lot of B two B contexts and things like that. I assume probably that'll trickle down to mm-hmm. to RTP limit size eventually, as it kind of has historically. So, you no, know, those those are kind of interesting data points. Um, and in terms of that, like in terms of where we are in that overall journey um, between now and, and the world you want to live in, like, like, are you kind of happy with the state of progress? Do you do you, do you think it's fast enough? Do you, do you know? Can you maybe just add some color to that? Yeah, yeah. I I think it's it's easy to say that we're not happy with, with the progress we've made, right? Uh, the the group of industry colleagues that I worked with through the Fed's uh, governance formation team set the date as 2020 that we were going to reach ubiquitous instant payments. And obviously uh, we didn't make that goal, right? So it's already 2021 and we're at, we're at what did I just say, 70% for receive. Um, so we're behind what we thought, where we thought we would be three or four years ago. That being said, I don't think anybody could have known um, how hard and how complex and how complicated, which um, this this was going to be. Um, there's a lot to this. And I think we all understood some of the ramifications about the speed and how that can be more complicated for, for financial institutions. But I think some of the other things that we didn't really th- realize or maybe take into account were um, the complexity associated with going from banking hours for transaction processing, you know, eight hours, nine hours a day for five days a week uh, to 24, seven, 365 transaction processing and the implications of that, uh, throughout the payments ecosystem, um, were, you know, that's, that's a difficult endeavor to say the least. So I, I think there's, there's complications there. And obviously, um, not, not that we were going to make it in 2020, but for, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, but I, I think that that is the case in point of there are just lots of competing interests in a lot of different things that financial institutions and corporates and technology companies can be focused on. And it's it, it has to be that there's a reason for them to focus on this. And I think we are starting to get there now. Um, but that's got to be, you know, in light of lots of different other things that are hitting the CEO's, you know, inbox at a, at a bank. So there's, there's a lot of work still to do on that note. And I totally, totally agree. Right. You know, there's uh, tons of distractions. And I mean, it strikes me as no matter how philosophically aligned you are to this and how much I believe, and I want to come back to this, you know, kind of the ease of use or the experiential layers that are going to build around this. I think that's fascinating, but um, you can believe in all that and it can still be very hard to get, I think the right investments and projects and funding on this stuff you know, authorized if you're sitting in a financial institution or wherever it might be. Right. And so do you, you know, what's your, what, you know, what's your kind of Cole's notes there? Like in terms of like, how do you build a case? How do you, you know, get more bodies, more dollars into this if, if you are an FI? And I, I don't think that probably applies to the, you know, top, you know, 
four or five or 10, you know, institutions in the US. But I think as you go down into the kind of messy middle, it gets harder and harder and harder up to the point where you're, you know, eventually just kind of waiting for FIS and Fiserv and Jack Henry to solve this for you. But curious if you have any thoughts. Yeah, I, I think primarily there's there's a couple of things to, to talk about there. One is um, a, a good friend of mine who is clearly biased, he works for the Clearinghouse, um, told me that there are no fast followers here. So I think talking about how, you know, you're either, you're either a follower or you're a leader. Um, and, and there's a lot to be said for being a leader in this space and being out in front of this and having all the learnings that comes with implementing early and investing in this space early when you know that at the end of the day, this is going to be the way that people transact in the future. Um, you know, the other thing that we, we talk a fair amount about is there are some very real threats to financial institutions that continue to emerge in the fintech space. Um, pretty much every day or every week you read about somebody else who's entering this space and trying to serve the very same customers that are served today by financial institutions. Um, and a lot of what they're talking about is how they make payments easier and more intuitive and simpler for customers. You think about all the different apps we have on our phones um, to solve something that I think banks are very well situated to solve for their customers um, in a way that keeps that bank brand front and center um, as opposed to the brand of another of a fintech that that doesn't create a deeper relationship between the bank and the customer. So I think, I think there's lots of reasons to be engaged and involved here. Um, that go to kind of the core of, of what it means to be a bank, which is ensuring that people want to engage with you for their financial operations and their financial lives. And so it sounds like on that note, I mean, to now kind of p- maybe put that in context back with your your point about, you know, the kind of ease of use and the ubiquity of, of really nice experiences around this. And and for sure, you know, I think the most obvious one is in, in you know, sort of peer-to-peer. And we've seen a preview into it with uh, Zelle and and with, I can't think of what the PayPal real-time peer-to-peer product is right now, but um, if we don't have it in Canada, but um, th- those were that. But I think there's going to be like um, just a, absolute explosion of all kinds of use cases i you know i think lots of very vertical specific and niche things whether it's in payroll whether it's in the way businesses transact with each other's you know certainly you see it in the way you know uh, insurance companies or you know high frequency kind of you know small volume payment to consumer type entities like that are gonna like do you think that the you know the banks are going to create the majority of those experiences or do you think it's going to be non-bank entities or you think it's just going to be a a mix and curious your thoughts on that yeah yeah i'm going to take the the punt answer here um that it's going to be a mix (laughs) so i i think yeah i i think there will be a lot of this can in my my opinion should be built into the bank app now a lot of banks obviously are outsourcing the creation and development of their apps to third parties anyway. So even a bank experience might not be created by the bank, even if it's ultimately in a bank branded app. Uh, but you think about things like, like Zelle, right? So many times Zelle is embedded within the bank's app. Um, you think about even broader than that though, um, we have a work group at the FPC that's working on QR codes as an example of of one of those experiential ways to conduct a faster payments transaction, which has been very successful in other markets around the world. If you look at India and China and even some in Europe, um, and thinking about 
if you're a financial institution and your customer is interested in using that sort of interface to conduct a payment, um, it, it might make sense for you to embed that within the bank app so the customer becomes even more reliant on on your app to to transact, right? So instead of opening up X or Y payment app, you open up your bank or credit union application to scan that QR code to push that payment. Um, we've got a work group also looking at recurring payments. So you mentioned bill pay earlier and payroll. Um, what are some of those repeated payments that people are making that could have that, that could that could stand to be make sure that you have the same type of experience that doesn't require them to engage every single time. You know, you've got fifteen dollars that you own Netflix uh, every month. You shouldn't necessarily have to go in and authorize that fifteen dollars every single time. So, how can we figure that piece out, and how can we make that easy for the customer? Um, and then, you know, thinking about even deeper, what are some some ways that we could leverage APIs? to connect together different applications on a phone to allow for a seamless experience that keeps the the brands that are involved in the transaction front and center to the customers that, that they're both trying to serve. No, it makes a lot of sense. I obviously dumped a laundry list of probably the most obvious, or at least all ones that I read about the most and didn't think of myself. Are there like less obvious sort of use cases or, or things that you think are going to happen that you might want to highlight? Yeah, um, try, I can't remember all the ones you mentioned, but the ones that that are, have been sort of interesting to me as I've been talking to folks have been um, gig economy specifically. So you mentioned payroll, but specifically pushing funds quickly um, to gig economy workers. So uh, especially if you have been living through this pandemic, which we all have been, um, I would guess that many of our listeners have been ordering uh, from restaurants and having it delivered more often the past year than maybe they did before. And, you know, whether it's Bite Squad or DoorDash or whatever, whichever app you use, some of us use more than one. Um, those drivers are um, incentivized by speed of pay um, in a way that you might not think about. And so they there's there's competition for drivers even um, for for that uh, to to if they can pay instantly. Um, another interesting one is merchant settlement. So think about a merchant who's even, you know, accepting traditional credit debit cards today, but um, in this, you know, particularly again in the in the last year, there's been a big cash crunch, uh, cash flow issues for lots of merchants out there. So being able to speed up settlement to where you're getting paid even multiple times per day for your day's credit card and debit card receipts has has been something that has driven some volume through those networks as well, which I thought was kind of interesting. No, I think both of those are fascinating. And I, I think to some extent, those two things, what's interesting about them is in a way I viewed them as linked a little bit, right? So the innovation, the gig economy folks were trying to do around push to real time. You know, if you're going to pay per ride, you kind of need to get paid per ride, right? Not three days after they swipe Reed's credit card or for, for the food order. And so it kind of put pressure kind of up through the value chain that i mean i i don't know and i don't know if anybody knows but it strikes me as the settlement time on like retail merchant processing accounts must have lost days of of kind of over the past couple of years right as there's been pressure on it kind of you know there was some of those situations were like a week later right you got your cash and bank from your merchant processor and it's now kind of it's kind of on a journey to to real time it feels like 
Yeah. I, I, you know, as somebody you mentioned, I was at Walmart for 15 years. I can tell you that the speed of settlement is very important, especially for a very large scale uh, retail, right? So being able to get those funds, you know, at least the next day, if not the same day is a big deal. Uh, even for large scale merchants like that, that aren't, you're not worried about being able to, to pay the bills, but you still have reasons why you want those funds to be available to you. And it's interesting because, um, and not to go too deep into my past, but when I was at Walmart and we were meeting with the Fed, and this was years ago when they were launching the whole strategies to improve the payment system uh, project. Um, and I, I told them exactly what you just said, which is you can't only speed up one flow of payments, right? You can't say merchants, now you can pay faster to your suppliers without saying that you're also going to speed up the inflow of funds because um, for most businesses, I think you know, this is sort of um, B school 101, like your, your P and L is great. And if you're, if you're showing you got a bunch of receivables, that's great, but really you need cash flow. Otherwise you're, you run out of cash and you can't pay your bills and you're out of business, whether you have uh, receivables or not. It totally makes sense while we're on it. And I mean, I, I would, could probably spend all day on it. It's obviously such an interesting organization, right? But one thing that strikes me is a neat parallel between Walmart um, and, and what we're talking about is the B2B aspects of faster payments are really about the integration of context, right? So the exchange of things like POs and, um, you know, invoices and rich structured data so I can match cash and authorize payments more quickly and reduce the min cost. And in some ways we have a, uh, uh, predecessor to that in EDI or electronic data exchange. And for most, most organizations that didn't really ever work because you some things you need right and the 1980s technology and the state of technology like didn't work but i always understood walmart to be somebody that did live in a world where that worked right and i think just because they're such a big center of gravity got a lot of their vendor relationships kind of automated on edi and that kind of thing is is that true i mean that's just my outside you know kind of you hear these these stories about it and do you want to expouse on that in any way uh, you know, what I would say is uh, kind of steering away from the inner workings of, of Walmart and talking more about it is absolutely a critical value of these new payment systems that you're able to have almost conversational payments where the context is right there with the payment in a way that I don't believe has been the case in the past. So having the ability to automate even further your your reconciliation processes, having the ability, um, say you're an insurance company, having the ability to tie together the claim with the payment, with the um, with the account, you know, with the customer in in a way that ties that all together and makes it all very transparent to everybody involved. What's going on and why the payment has has arrived. Um, you know, it's sort of funny to say, and I think anybody who's been in a in any sort of business knows that. Um, receiving a payment and not knowing what it's for is almost as bad as not receiving it at all. Um, and in some cases worse, right? Because now you're you're having to spend a bunch of effort to track down why why did this money arrive in my account? Who did it come from? Um, and you know, what is it sort of offsetting in terms of my receivables? Um, that being automated in a way that is sort of in inherent to a payment system can really revolutionize a lot and create a lot of efficiency in the back office. I I was at an AFP conference once and it was uh, some treasure got up. I, I swore that I can't remember the company. They had 
I would say it was in the billions of dollars of unallocated cash on their balance sheet, just money that somebody had sent them that they could never quite figure out why or where it was supposed to go. So it was probably, it was almost certainly owed to them. They just didn't know exactly like where it was, how, how to account for it. it. Like it's, that's there forever, I guess. I and mean, they must kind of write that off eventually and clean it up. But the netted against receivables, but it was profound to me, uh, the scale that it could be at. Yeah, that, that, that's a very large number <laughs> to, to have for sure. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I don't want to pretend like, well, we'll just turn on RTP and fed now and that will solve all of this. That's obviously not going to be the case, but I think having it in a way that is, that allows for a level of clarity and transparency that hasn't been available in the past is, is really going to help a lot of businesses once this, once they, once they adopt it. No, I, I, I to- totally agree. And it, I mean, it, it is highly speculative, but going back to your idea about there being, you know, you, there's no fast follow, there's just going to be a big chasm. I, I think the room to be innovative for the front running banks on this stuff is immense, right? And I, I mean, I largely think B2B, but I think there's probably ways that a bank, you know, we start to talk about some of these requests for payment type messages that are very business context being exchanged to the network. I think there's ways to put products to your customers where you invite your business partners to bank at bank X with you because it has this, you know, closed loop and automated, you know, reconciliation and things like that. Like I, I think the future is completely unwritten in terms of the kinds of businesses that banks might find themselves in. Yeah, I agree. I think there's going to be a competitive advantage that banks can create for themselves in that for sure. And, uh, you've already started to see that a bit with, um, I'm going to forget which one of but one of the one of the delivery services um, has been actively encouraging their drivers to change financial institutions to to go on to a bank that is connected to the RTP network. Yeah, make you a massive center of gravity, right? If you start to have more scenarios like that. I mean, we could get into the weeds on this stuff all day, but I mean, I think we've, we've gotten to the meat of it. Um, what? You know, is there anything as you kind of sit back on this conversation that you know you think is missing or that we didn't you know touch on in terms of this? Uh, yeah, you know, I just think as, as as we're going forward, and you know, I think we're all wondering: Are we in the new normal now, or, or when is when are we going to be back to normal uh, coming out of this pandemic? And what are the implications of some of that stuff for payments? And I, I think it's. Again, I, I guess this is maybe a punt answer, but I, I think it's a mistake to think that we're already back to where we're going to be. But I think it's also a mistake to think that things are going to go back to the way they were. So um, I think if, if you're thinking about payments in terms of which changes happened over the last year that arguably made things better and easier for people and which changes made things not as good, um, you can probably think through it that way and identify where are some spaces that I should be thinking about investing and getting engaged on the payment space, right? So uh, groceries, as an example, um, you know, I, I think prior to the pandemic, I, I was the type of person I would, every week I would drive to the store and I would pick out a cart and I would walk up and down the aisles for 45 minutes, picking stuff out. And then I would go to the front of the store. I'd put all that stuff out of the cart onto the belt. Somebody would scan it. Then I would pay for it. And then they would put it back in the cart. I'd put it in my truck and I'd drive back to my house and I put it in my house. I, 
now, I mean, I, I can buy groceries faster than I just described the old process for buying groceries. And the implications of that are, I'm not paying for that in the store anymore. I'm paying for that remotely from an app. Um, and I, I think there's gonna be lots of use cases like that that are not gonna go back. No, I, I think that's a great way to probably sum the whole conversation up right there. So um, why, don't, why don't we do that? Uh, Thanks everyone for for listening to this. Thanks, Amy Reed, for for being on the episode today. I think that's really uh, helpful. Just kind of walk us through the state of sort of this migration to real time from your perspective and some of the value when we get there. So I really appreciate that. Um, thanks everybody again for listening. If this is your first time listening, feel free to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, and uh, send the episode to a friend. We always appreciate that. And any questions, comments, or concerns, uh, never hesitate to email info at fispan.com, F-I-S-P-A-N.com. Have a nice day, everybody.